Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 19. I'll be reading verses 1 through 19. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Turk Terhaka, king of Cush. Behold, he is set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given to the, into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria hath done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the kings of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sephavarim, the king of Henna, or the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of the Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. But they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the nations of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys hear me? Good. How are you guys doing? Oh. Sorry, one more time. Oh. All right, cool. Well, if you're visiting with us uh, this morning, my name's Young Jay. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar. 
uh, and we are going through our King series. So if you've visited us uh, for the past couple weeks, uh, we've gone through and talked about the different uh, the kings that we see in uh, Second Kings. Uh, so in today's passage that Zach just read uh, in chapter uh, 19 of Second Kings, uh, we have two main characters, Hezekiah and Sennacherib. Uh, our first character uh, is uh, King Hezekiah. In 2 Kings chapter 18, just kind of build some context uh, before we dive in into chapter 19. If you read 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 29, uh, King Hezekiah is described as a good king. So for the past several weeks, we've talked about many different evil kings. Like finally, like we have a good one. Like finally, this is a good king. Um, specifically in 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 5, it tells us that he trusted in the Lord and that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So Hezekiah became king at just 25 years old, uh, and he boldly cleaned house as soon as he took his reign. Uh, He destroyed pagan altars, idols, and temples, and he reopened the temple in Jerusalem that was actually closed by his predecessor, uh, who happened to be his father. So his father, who was the evil king, closed the temple, uh, and once Hezekiah became king, uh, he cleaned house and reestablished everything uh, in accordance with the God of Israel. Hezekiah also reestablished proper way of worship in Jerusalem and reinstituted the Passover as well. Uh, Then the second character that we have in this uh, passage is uh, Hezekiah's opposition. Uh, and that is Sennacherib. He was the king of Assyria. When you look at it from a historical standpoint, uh, Assyria was a major world power for about 1,000 years. So that's about from 1700 BC to 727 uh, BC. During the time of our passage, they invaded Judah, uh, the northern kingdom, and began to march against Jerusalem. Uh, So if you can show a picture here. So if you look at the, the... the bold line with the arrow coming down, that's kind of uh, Sennacherib's, uh, um, like his tour essentially of how he uh, destroyed all the cities and he, how he kind of conquered his land. Uh, so at this point in the story, uh, Syrians had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and now threatening Judah. Uh, historians tell us that he captured roughly a little over 200,000 people during that time uh, and uh, he uh, conquered about 46 cities uh, in the region. So after defeating and capturing 46 cities, he is now at Hezekiah's doorstep. Uh, So now this brings us to today's passage uh, as um, Sennacherib is getting ready to go into Jerusalem for his uh, 47th uh, victory. Uh, So before we begin, uh, let's just pray real quick. God, you are good. You are sovereign. You are graceful. Father, as we dig into the story of Hezekiah today, God, I pray that we can see you more clearly this morning. God, I pray that we can see you, that you, uh, we can see that you are faithful. God, I pray that we can see that you are um, sovereign. God, I pray that we can see that we can have our hope in you. God, we uh, thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen. So this past month in September, uh, Chanel and I hit our uh, two-year mark on island, uh, being stationed in Okinawa uh, at Kadena, and this is, it's been great. The last two years has been a really good season for us. Uh, one of our favorite things about living on the island uh, is the food, so we love food, uh, so sushi, uh, ramen or yakiniku, or you name it. Like we don't, we don't, uh, we're not picky. We like to, eat, we like to eat out. Uh, but we have a five and a three-year-old, so sometimes going out to eat, going out to restaurants, is not the most life-giving activity uh, during the weekend. Uh, but one thing that does make it easier is that I'm sure you've noticed uh, when you go out to eat, uh, to especially like one of like the local Japanese restaurants, and you order um, like a kids meal. Then every kid's meal, it seems like they always come out with the jello, right? Like those jellos are like lifesavers. So usually I use that so that we can get through the meal kind of peacefully. 
If you go to San A, uh, there's a bag full. You can buy a bag of those jellos. So sometimes we buy a, a bag for the boys, and we put them in the fridge, and we give it to them for, uh, from time to time. But after a few weeks of that purchase, there's always that moment where I open the fridge, and there's only one. I have two boys that doesn't know how to share. I have one. And I know at, mo at any moment in time, some, like Aiden's going to open the fridge, or somebody's going to ask for a jello, and then there's only going to be one. So this is a great opportunity for me to be a great father and kind of explain how to share, how to sacrifice. But that's, like, that's a lot of work, right? So usually I, I go the easy way out. So what's the solution, right? You have one jello, you have two boys. I eat it, right? So I look to my left, I look to my right, I eat it. It's gone, there's nothing to share. So if they ask, like, well, we'll just get another one from the back. Sorry, boys, like, there's nothing to share. Or like, it could have been anybody. I don't know who they ate it, right? <laughs> But our God, our God the Father, is not like that, thankfully, right? Our God is not like that. I'm limited in my resources to produce more jealous for the kids. God has unlimited amount of resources for the good of his people. Because of my failures, I'm limited in my abilities in terms of giving my boys hope when they open the fridge. God in his sovereignty and goodness gives us eternal hope. I have limitations on how much I can safeguard my boys. God is our ultimate rescue and refuge. So today, as we, dig, uh, as we go through the story of Hezekiah, we'll hit three points today. So our first point is prayer gives us hope. So as we uh, read through uh, this uh, chapter uh, that Zach just read, uh, we'll learn from Hezekiah and specifically how he responded uh, in the midst of fear and see how prayer gives us hope. And our second uh, point today is spiritual community points us to Jesus. So as we dig through the story, we'll see that Hezekiah was not alone. Hezekiah had a community around him uh, that helped him to point him to Jesus. And our third uh, point, the last point, is Jesus is our rescuing king. So although Hezekiah was a good king, for the most part, he was a good king, uh, but he still had his failures, specifically towards the end of his life. And we'll talk about that at the end, and we'll talk about how that ultimately points us to Jesus. So our first point, prayer gives us hope. Fear is one of human nature's primary emotions, right? When a baby's born, uh, he or she comes out of the womb crying. And typically that crying is due to fear. Baby is full of fear because for nine months he was constricted, tight, comfortable, dark, and he was warm. Then out of nowhere, somebody pops you out, right? Then it's bright, cold. There's all different kinds of people that are touching you, right? Like the baby comes out crying because of fear. Fear is what Hezekiah is experiencing in our passage. Verse 1 of today's passage, it says, As soon as King Hezekiah heard Sennacherib's message of destruction, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. In verse 14, after receiving Sennacherib's message of mocking God of Israel, his plan to abolish them, again, it states, Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So in verse uh, 14 through 19 that we read, that's Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah prays a deep emotional prayer. Sometimes we read these kind of prayers, specifically if you read through the book of Psalms, there's a lot of those, right? And it kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. Like, can you really say that, like, in a prayer? Like, specifically in verse 3 of today, when we read these type of prayers, sometimes we wonder if we can say those things. Verse 3 of today's passage says, Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. So like, to be clear, like, I've never given birth, so I don't exactly know what that means, right? And 
I'm pretty sure Hezekiah didn't give birth, so it's kind of weird Hezekiah is using that imagery to kind of describe his fear. Uh, but I guess he's the king, so he can express his fear however he wants. But nonetheless, it doesn't sound great. Imagery and the metaphor of verse 3 is intense. Uh, but this is Hezekiah's raw emotions at the time of his prayer. He was desperate. He was hopeless. He felt like he had no more strength, and he can feel that death was imminent. He was full of fear and without hope. Fear and hopelessness are what Hezekiah was experiencing in the beginning of chapter 19. Hezekiah, in response to his fears, he immediately entered the house of the Lord for prayer. The first thing we can learn from Hezekiah is the way he responded to fear, which is turning to the house of the Lord for prayer. Point of today's message is not to be a great figure. Today's point, the main point is not for us to be a great figure like King Hezekiah and stand up and eliminate your fears. He saw, because Hezekiah didn't do those things. Hezekiah didn't stand up and immediately eliminate his fears. He was fearful. He was scared. He had doubts. He saw the size of the Assyrian army and their military power, and all of the data indicated that he was going to lose. If the main point of today's message is to be like Hezekiah, if the main point of today's message through Hezekiah's story is for you to be stronger, bigger, and tougher, if today's point is to be a high king to overcome all of your uh, struggles and fears, then that would lead to two types of responses. And the both types will leave you hopeless. For some of us, that type of uh, message for you to be stronger and bigger and tougher will build a false sense of identity. For a moment, you might actually believe and you might actually think that you can, you're strong enough to overcome all of your fears and struggles. You'll end up believing that you can take on any challenges of life and lead your life to victory. And to be fair, you may have some victories here and there, but building a false sense of identity will leave you hopeless because eventually you'll fall. But when it comes to the things that really matter in life, when it comes to the things that really gives us identity, sense of belonging, peace, hope, joy, security. You won't find them by yourself. Having a false sense of identity will eventually leave you hopeless because you eventually you will fall. But for others, if the message is for you to be stronger, bigger, and tougher, then you'll walk out of here without hope. You know the realities of your limits. You know the realities of your abilities. Throughout the week, you've battled your fears, you've battled your struggles, and you see no end. Marital problems, parenting challenges, relationship issues, difficult people at work, career struggles, financial challenges, a hidden sin you've been fighting by yourself throughout the week, desires in your heart that you know that aren't pure and good, they're all overwhelming. So if the message of Hezekiah is to look at Hezekiah and become a high king to fight off your opposition, then this message will leave you hopeless because we're asking you to become, we're asking you to become someone that you're not designed to be. Both responses to a message that tells you to be stronger, tougher, and bigger leaves you hope, I mean, leaves you without hope. As believers, our safe place is not to be strong or independent, but it's actually the opposite. Our safe space is to accept our failures and depend on God. And the way we do that is through prayer. 
So the first thing we can learn from Hezekiah's prayer is found in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. In Hezekiah's prayer, instead of addressing his problems in the beginning, he's addressing God's own characteristics. Hezekiah is praying back to God on who he is. God of Israel, you are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth, creator of heaven and earth. When we verbally reestate God's character, when we remind ourselves of who God is, when we start off our prayer by stating the reality of our Father, then we start to cage our viewpoint. We start to cage our perspective to God's perspective. Throughout the day, especially in the midst of fear, only thing we do is think about our problems through our perspective. Only thing we do is think about our problems from our viewpoint. We calculate things in our head. We map out how we think things are going to play out. We get lost in the midst of all the Instagram experts. I once had someone tell me that instead of calling our time with the Lord, quiet time or devotional time or whatever you call it, uh, he said to call it a time of realignment. When we pray, we're coming to the Father to realign and recalibrate our thoughts and to recalibrate our hearts to God. On an aircraft, if you have a plane with asymmetrical flaps on both sides of the wing, on both sides of the airplane, left and right, uh, then, and the two sides are not aligning to each other, then that's an issue because now the pilot can't control his flight control systems on, on his airplane. In order to accurately find the problem, in order to accurately fix the issue, one of the steps you have to perform is to recalibrate the two flaps on each side to its baseline. As Christians, our baseline is our creator. Our baseline cannot be our own judgment. It can't be social media, status, size of our opposition. Our baseline is not, quote unquote, follow your heart. Our baseline is, to have, is for us to calibrate our mind to Jesus. The gospel, the Christian message, the hope of our faith is not based on our performance or ignoring our failures or it's not watering down our problems by saying like holy and pretty and spiritual things. In verse 17, in the middle of his prayer, Hezekiah is upfront and honest about his, about his opposition. He says, king of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. So he's fully acknowledging uh, the scary context of his situation and that his opposition is not a random neighborhood bully, uh, but a king of Assyria with military power who has a track record of taking down cities and Jerusalem is, is next on his list. He's 46 and 0 at this point. But in the midst of his fear, Hezekiah is praying through his prayer, his fear. In the same way, we don't ignore our fear. We don't water down our problems. We acknowledge the things that we have going on in our lives. And we pray through our challenges. When we realign ourselves to God and remind ourselves of his character, then we find hope because we now to see our problems through the lens of God. This doesn't mean that our problems miraculously go away. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't mean we're going to water down our problems. It's the prayer is not a tactic to invalidate your feelings or invalidate your concerns, but it's for us to return to our baseline. Our baseline is the perfect Father who is infinite and who is sovereign. 
When we pray, we disconnect our souls from all of our distractions. We detach ourselves from the extra noises that we have in our lives. When we pray and we remind ourselves of God's character, then other side of that prayer is when we find hope. But that hope doesn't come without a promise. It's not an empty hope. Our hope is not in a form of big fancy words. It's not our way of watering down our problems. When we pray, because our creator has promised us to be our fortress and refuge. In today's story, that promise is found in chapter 19, verse 33, 32 through 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. For I will defend this city. Not only, is, not only is God saying he will defeat uh, Sennacherib's army, but he promises that they won't even come into the city. He promises that they won't even footstep into their boundaries. They won't come into the city or, nor get a shot off. God plainly and cl- uh, clearly drew a line. And the best thing about his promise is that defense of Jerusalem has nothing to do with Hezekiah. It has nothing to do with the city of Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with their military power. It has nothing to do with their political strategies or economic assets, quite frankly, because they had none. They didn't have any of those things. They didn't have any of the things that made sense for them to to beat them. God is taking full responsibility of their victory, of their defense. But why is that? Why is God taking full responsibility? Why is God defending Jerusalem? What's the reason for protection God's providing? Let's look at verse 34 one more time. If you can go back to verse 34. It says, God will defend Jerusalem for whose sake? Why is God defending Jerusalem? It says, for I will defend the city to save it, and then comma, for my own sake. For the sake of my servant, David. At the end of verse 34, it tells, that it's, it tells us that it's for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God is defending Jerusalem for his own sake. And when he says David, uh, in, at this point in the history, King David died about 300 years ago. So why is David even relevant? Why is David relevant when he died 300 years ago? Isaiah is pointing us to God's promise to David. Isaiah's prophecy is pointing us to the lineage, lineage of David. Isaiah is referring to God's promise that through David's bloodline, that a Messiah would be born to deliver his people. God is promising to defend Jerusalem, not because of Hezekiah. The verse doesn't say, I will defend the city because of Hezekiah's prayer. It doesn't say, I will defend the city if you do X. Up to this point in their history, they had wicked kings that we've described for the past uh, couple weeks. And the nation of Judah were full of idolatry for generations. If anything, they deserve judgment. But God's promise of protection, defense, and rescue is rooted on God's own sake. It's not for their sake. It's not based on them. He promised to defend Jerusalem through his own accord based on his character and on who, on who he is. 
God's promise to be a defender and establishing himself as a rescuing king has nothing to do with Hezekiah or anyone else sitting at the human throne. But in our human heart, we want the exact opposite. In our human heart, what we want is to be able to say, well, I got this because of X. I deserve this because of this. I'm in this position because of A. In our hearts, that's what we desire. In our hearts, we want to be able to say, God blessed us, God rescued us because of I did X. But in this story, it doesn't say that. It, doesn't, it has nothing to do with Hezekiah, but it has everything to do with whom we call the spotless lamb of God, the one who was crucified on Calvary, the one who, who is infinite over his finite people. When we enter the house of the Lord to pray, we're reminded that promises of verse 30 through 34 applies, us, applies to us as well. There is no reason why Sennacherib should have lost. He was 46-0 up to this point. He was the modern-day Floyd Mayweather, undefeated champion with really questionable character. Jerusalem had no military power. They knew they would lose in a battle. In chapter 18, if you go a few chapters back, Hezekiah even sent a peace offering uh, to fend them off because there is no natural or logical reason why they would lose. But God rescued them in, uh, in verse 35. It says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 people in the camp of Assyrian. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The defense of Jerusalem was based on God's goodness and his faithfulness. God's kingdom and his plan of salvation for his people cannot and will not be stopped. Hollywood, terrorism, college professors, depending on where you go to college, all the different kind of groups that we see in our society that are pursuing to destroy the truth of our maker can be intimidating. It can be scary. But verse 35 reminds us that we serve a God that is undefeated. Verse 34 wouldn't be good news. The gospel wouldn't be good news if it says, I will defend this nation if you pray five times. I will defend, defend this nation if you do good things, if you tithe, if you serve the needy, if you volunteer. There is no if. It wouldn't be good news if Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem fought off the Assyrian army with their own power. If Jerusalem was saved through their own, through their own strength, then it wouldn't be good news because they work for that. They work for those things. Verse 34 is unconditional. God's promise to deliver them is not a conditional agreement. The promises of verse 32 and 34 is our testimony and it's our hope. Creator of this universe, King of all kings, whose name is above all names, who knows your deepest thoughts, your deepest secrets, loves you. And that love is not based on our performance. It's not based on our actions. And to be frank, we don't want it to be. God's promise to protect Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem is a reminder that all people who call Jesus Christ as Lord is protected and is saved. 
By sheer grace, Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem was saved. And by sheer grace, you and I are saved. Second point, spiritual community points us to Jesus. I love sports uh, movies. Uh, I enjoy any type of sports movie, any type of sports documentaries. Uh, one of the favorite ones I have is uh, Coach Carter. Uh, it was, came out in 2005. It's a basketball story. Uh, it's a true story based on uh, Richmond High School in California. Uh, it follows a coach named Ken Carter uh, who made headlines in 1999 uh, for suspending his undefeated uh, high school basketball team uh, due to poor academics. In the beginning of the movie, uh, Coach Carter uh, has a problem with one of his players named Cruz. Uh, Cruz gets an attitude during practice. Uh, he walks out of practice because he's angry, and then Coach Carter ultimately kicks him out of the team. Later on, Cruz comes back, and he wants to now return the team. Coach tells him he has to complete 2,500 push-ups, uh, 1,000 suicides by end of the week before he can return to the team. Obviously, that's going to take forever. Uh, probably nearly impossible for one person to do uh, in a week uh, to finish that many push-ups and suicides uh, in less than seven, uh, seven days. Uh, but Cruz puts his stuff down, and he just starts running. He tries anyways. At the end of the week, Cruz is short 80 suicides and 500 push-ups, and he's told to leave the gym. Uh, one of his teammates steps in and looks at Coach Carter and says, you said we're a team. One person struggles, we all struggle. One person tri triumph, we all triumph. So then the rest of the team joins in to finish what's left. In the same way Cruz needed his teammates uh, to get back on the team, we need each other for growth and health. We need a spiritual community. We're not designed to live in isolation. We need a spiritual family to walk alongside us, to live life together, to lift each other up and help each other to finish our, set, our own sets of pace, our own sets of push-ups and sit-ups. Where we find that spiritual family, where we find this community, is here. It's from the local church. It's from this building. It's from this room is where we find our community. Hezekiah's entrance to the house of the Lord reminded him of the gospel. When we're in God's presence, when we enter his, uh, his house, when we surround ourselves with God's people, we're able to point each other to Christ. This building, this room, alone doesn't have any special power. But this room, this building, is a centralized location that we as Pillar Church of Okinawa have established to gather as God's people. This place is where we gather to worship, to pray, and to connect with each other. And that fact alone is special, and that there's beauty in that. Throughout the first century church, when you read the book of Acts, we see God's power and his presence when God's people gather together in his name. And even today's story, we see that Hezekiah was not alone, and we see the power of community. If we can look at chapter, or verse 2, and when he sent Elikim, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and the senior priest. So we see that the senior priest was with him, and that the message of, of Isaiah uh, was with him. Then if you go to verse 5 through 6, it says, Servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah to listen to what Isaiah said. Then if you jump down to verse 14, Hezekiah received the letters from the hand of his messengers. So Hezekiah was not alone. His high priest was part of the group that delivered Isaiah's message back and forth. 
Scripture is very clear on the importance of believers having a community, hearing God's word, and entering his house. In the same way Isaiah was able to point Hezekiah to God, when we come together in this room for corporate worship, as believers, as fellow believers, we're able to point each other to Christ. Within the past 10 years or so, um, I don't really want to call it a trend because I don't think it's a trend, but the whole thing about I hate religion but love Jesus, right? I think like, there was a big YouTube video that I think maybe 10 years got blew up. It says, I hate religion and but love Jesus. It just kind of went through this whole thing. And some people have taken that a little too far, and they say that they're spiritual and they slandered organized religion uh, and see no value in taking part in the church. Uh, to be completely honest, I see both sides. I think there's some truth to kind of what they're trying to highlight. Um, but in recognize some of the mistakes that the churches have made uh, in the, for, uh, for several years now. I understand that we are the church, and wherever we go, we're the church, right? And of course, the emphasis of having a personal relationship with the Lord. But somewhere in that, we lost sight of the importance of a local church, and specifically, importance of meeting for corporate worship together with other believers. Especially, we especially experienced this during COVID, when we had all the online services. And of course, like at that point in time, like the online services were necessary. Uh, I see the value in online services, especially when you're sick or when you're traveling and when you can't make it to church. But some of us have taken that too far and stopped attending altogether. We've taken ourselves out of the local church and replaced community with YouTube. We're not designed to be isolated. We're called to gather. We're called to enter the house of the Lord together. And for us, it's this building. It's this room that we gather for worship. It's this room where we gather to pray. It's this room where we are holding one another together. When we, get to, when we get to take part in each other's baptism, like today, it's this room, and there's beauty in that. Main way we do this at Pillar is through membership and missional community groups. For us, membership is a formal way of showing your commitment to us for a short season uh, that you're on island. Uh, for the newcomers in the room and anyone that's not a member, like this is not a plug for membership to get into your wallets. Like We're not asking for money. There is no monetary a commitment or even a request through membership. For us, member, membership is just a clear way of expressing and communicating our commitment to each other so that as a church that we can love you and your family better for the next couple years you're on island. And for missional community groups, if you're new with us, this is our, fo- uh, our, our own form of a small group uh, that you, have, you may have seen in your other churches. It's a smaller group than obviously in the, this corporate worship. Uh, you typically meet at somebody's house or some groups meet here uh, in this building. You study scripture together, you eat together, and you pursue a specific set of missions together. Ben mentioned this, uh, our elder Ben, uh, a couple weeks ago during his sermon, he mentioned this. He said, find an MC that fits your schedule. But if you can't find one that fits your schedule, then change your schedule. Now, that's a little blunt, but there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's a lot of wisdom in that. We're not designed to live in isolation. We're not designed to live without a spiritual community. We need each other. We need corporate worship, like today, to come together as God's people for worship. And we need missional community groups for deeper connections and accountability. And the last thing that we have is fight clubs. Uh, It's 
Typically, ideally, it's coming out of your uh, uh, mission or community groups, but it's definitely, uh, typically it's about three to four people, um, three to four guys, three to four ladies that get together and they share uh, sins, confess your sins, confess your hearts, and really get uh, deep uh, in, and uh, intimate. But if you're not in an MC, then I challenge you to join one. And if you're in an MC, then invite someone who's not in one. And if they don't come, then invite them again. And if they don't come the second time, then ask them how they're doing and then invite them again. <laughs> or connect with them, somebody else. Or there's a trick that I've done. Um, well, that's, that's, that's a really bad way of saying it. Um, there is a thing that I do sometimes when, I, when I've invited people to MC and they like, oh, you know, like, like oh, I don't know, like, maybe, maybe not. Like, I'll come, like that, like half commitment, right? And they don't come. I invite them again, they don't come. The next time, I just don't even invite them. I just ask them what they're doing. And they're like, oh, I'm not doing anything that day. It's like, oh, great, you can come to MC then. I'll see you over there, right? You've already said you don't have anything to do, so I'll see you at MC. <laughs> when a visitor pursues membership and becomes part of our family, then we as a church have an obligation to each other. This is not a local gym that you just sign up for and you just sign off your contract whenever you don't want to be a part of it. But we have an obligation to each other we have an obligation to lift each other up and to provide community that's more than a Sunday service. Our last point, Jesus is our rescuing king. Growing up, uh, Sports Center was always on at our house. Um, if my brother and I couldn't really decide like, what we were gonna watch, uh, then ESPN was typically like, the default channel, so it was always on. Um, I haven't had cable or TV at our house in a long time, uh, so I haven't watched ESPN. Uh, but I'm pretty sure they still do this. Uh, but I used to love watching uh, Sports Center's uh, top 10 plays of the week or top 10 plays of the night, right? So every night they do top 10 plays. Uh, but my favorite was on Fridays. I th they used to do it. I'm sure they still do it now. But on Fridays, they used to do sp uh, their not top 10 plays of the week, right? So they get all the blunders and all the silly mistakes that they have throughout the week. Uh, I'm sure you, some of you guys have seen it. It's great. Uh, but my favorite type of not top 10 plays were the football highlights. Uh, where you have a punt, uh, punt returner or receiver, right? Uh, they, they're returning the ball and they're going down the field. And as he's nearing the end zone, he celebrates a little too early and he drops the ball right before he crosses the line. Um, he thinks he got a touchdown. He starts celebrating. The receiver gets a little too cocky. He thinks he's cool, uh, then drops the ball before the end zone. All that hard work, all the hard work that him and his team did for the last 50 to 60 yards bore no fruit because of his ego. This is similar to the story of Hezekiah's uh, kingship. For the past couple months during our king series, we talked about many different kinds of kings. Uh, a lot of them were evil. A lot of them led their people astray and away from God. Hezekiah specifically, he reigned uh, for roughly 29 years. He brought victory for Jerusalem and reestablished Yahweh as their God. In comparison to his peers, in, compared, uh, in comparison to his predecessors, uh, he was a good king. Overall, you can categorize him as a good king for the nation of Judah. But he wasn't perfect, and we see that later in his life, and specifically in chapter 20. Uh, chapter 20 is a short chapter, so we won't read it uh, today, but just to summarize, Hezekiah gets sick. So chapter 20, uh, verse 1, it says, um, he tells us that he was sick at the point of uh, death. Hezekiah became desperate and prayed for healing and extension for his life, and God answered his prayer, and he, God adds 15 years to his life. As this was happening, king of Babylon hears about Hezekiah's illness and pays him a visit uh, with gifts. 
At the point of this visit, uh, we can assume that Hezekiah was already healed. So Hezekiah will, welcomes to them uh, into their house, and he begins to show them all of his treasures. He begins to show them all of the things that he has. Uh, he puts on his own version of MTV Cribs and show them all of his treasures and all of his fancy toys. Instead of giving God the glory for his healing, instead of maybe, I don't know, taking them to the temple, he showed them his treasures, displayed, displayed all of his things. He was proud of his accomplishments and his riches. Second Chronicles uh, chapter t- 32, verse 24, uh, shows a glimpse of Hezekiah's intentions in his heart. It says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefits done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. When Sennacherib was knocking on his door for war, Hezekiah turned to the temple. He turned to the house of the Lord, but when God extends his life by 15 years instead of the temple, he focused on his riches. Hezekiah got what he wanted from God and then immediately shifted his heart towards his own accomplishments and his own treasures. At the core of the human heart, we lean towards conditional relationships. What's in it for me? Our entire society, for the most part, is built around conditional affairs. Instead of service, we seek seek benefits from our jobs, relationships, and social status. You have the same hobbies as I do, so let's hang out. You have the same values as I do, let's get to know each other. You work hard, here's a paycheck. You're good at your job, here's a promotion. Your kids play well with my kids, let's be friends. You're not too needy, here's my number. You're fun to talk to and not too annoying, so come over for dinner. When you walk into a room, Do you look for someone who's attractive, who seems to have the same value as you, or someone who's sitting by themselves? All those thoughts are my thoughts. All those struggles are the struggles of my heart. And just maybe, just maybe, you struggle with them as well. All those thoughts are not necessarily bad. They're not necessarily bad in nature. But be honest and really think about the intentions behind those statements. We carry this mindset to our relationship with the Lord. For some of us, when things aren't going well, when we're in need, we turn to prayer. Then when we are full and happy, we turn to our other gods. For others, it's the other way around. When things are good, we stay in the Lord. But when we are in need, we don't trust that God can fulfill us. So we turn to our other gods. We turn to money, relationships, alcohol, material things, images on the internet, whatever your God is in that season. When we think about sin, we tend to have a list of do's and don'ts. But that's not what sin is. Sin is not just a giant list of good deeds and bad deeds. When you look at Hezekiah, it wasn't immorality, it wasn't theft, it wasn't murder, sexual sin, or anything outrageous, but it was forgetting the Lord of his life. 
Sin is simply when our hearts are turned away from the Lord. Sin is when we lose sight of Jesus. Hezekiah showed them all his treasures. He showed them the gods of his life in that current season. Then Isaiah comes into chapter 20, verse 16 through 18, and gives him a rebuke, warning, not exactly sure what it is, but definitely not positive. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the words of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and there shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah is telling Hezekiah that he will lose all of his treasures. You know the things that you just showed off, all the things that you showed? Not only will you lose them, but you will lose them to the very people that he showed. Just to make matters worse, it's, it's Hezekiah's response to this. Hezekiah responds, in, responds to Isaiah in verse 19. It's not great. It's definitely not your king of the year type response. He says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The words of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Who cares is what Hezekiah is saying. He says, Why not? As long as there's peace and security in my days. Who cares? In the New Living Translation, it translates verse uh, 19. It says, at least there will be peace and security in my days. At least. Why not? This was the king's response. Even though Hezekiah was one of the better kings, he still failed. The king that's supposed to look out for the good of his people is saying, why not? This was the king's response. Hezekiah stood in the gap of his people and God. As a king who is supposed to lead his people for their good, responds, why not, when he, when he, after hearing about their ruins. But we have another king. We have a king like Hezekiah who stood at the gap for us. We have a king who stood at the gap and became the perfect mediator to the father. When Hezekiah was facing death, he asked for healing and extension of his life. We have a king who also faced death, and he said, not my will, but yours be done. When Hezekiah was told, your people will be taken away, Hezekiah responded, why not, as long as there's peace in my days. We have a king in the middle of his public, uh, public execution, as he was hanging on a cross, one of his last words were, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hezekiah displayed his silver, gold, and precious oils. We have a king who displayed his crown of thorns on a rugged cross. We have a king who stood at our gap and die for us when we least deserved it. Earlier, we talked about hope. Our hope is not based on empty words. It's not empty promises. It's not based on inspirational quotes. 
It's based on a king that was crucified on our behalf and resurrected from the grave. It's based on a king that was crucified on our behalf. The foundation of our hope is not only told to us in scripture, but it's recorded in human history as Jesus was crucified on a cross. And then three days later, we find an empty tomb. But God's goodness doesn't stop there. God's goodness doesn't stop at the payment of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, it gives us more good news. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only is our debt paid off, not only did Jesus Christ die on our behalf, but we are deemed righteous. Despite our weakness, despite our past, despite our weaknesses, despite our sins, not only are we freed from our transgressions, but we are called righteous. We are called sons and daughters of the Most High. Pillar family, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Unlike Hezekiah, who was a good king for a short season, we have a king who sits at the throne as our rescuing king for eternity. Jesus is the true and better Hezekiah. Jesus is your rescuing king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the word that we uh, talked about this morning. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the love that you poured out for us. God, I pray that we can live our lives uh, reminding ourselves and reminding each other of your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.